All right, you guys ready to talk about Habakkuk? That's what you guys came for today, right? <laughs> uh, I'm second guessing my sermon today. No. <laughs> I appreciate you being here. Second Peter 1 9 says this it says, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So here's the idea that has stuck with me this week, is that, P, at least according to Peter, this isn't my opinion, according to Peter, it's possible to be so nearsighted that you're blind. Now, what does it mean to be nearsighted? Those of you maybe with glasses may know. <laughs> I'll quote my source. According to the American Optometric Association, nearsightedness is the condition where close things, close objects, are seen clearly. But objects further away are blurry. You can't see them, right? Anyone nearsighted in the room? Yeah. Thank you for raising your hand. <laughs> so you can see things right in front of your face. You can see the things that are near, but the stuff that's far away, it's harder to see. Medically speaking, it's called myopia. So here's the warning of Peter. Peter says, this is thousands of years ago, Peter says it's possible for you to be so nearsighted and all you can see is right here in front of your face that you're actually blind. And in his case, he's pointing to looking at the past and talking about the fact that you can be so stuck in what's in front of your face that you've forgotten the fact actually that in your past it's been taken care of through Jesus, through his life, death, resurrection, but I think this condition works not just by looking in the past, it also works the other way. And we can be spiritually myopic and only see what's here in front of us and miss the fact of what's to come. And Peter warns us that it's possible to be so nearsighted that we're blind. When all you see is right in front of your face, when all you can see is right here and right now. So with that in mind, uh, go ahead and open your Bibles if you have them. If not, they're up on the screen. Habakkuk chapter 2, which I know sounds like a crazy idea for us to be in this like, obscure Old Testament prophet book with funny named Habakkuk. We've been here the last couple weeks because I found that the, the message of this book is really relevant for our world and our life today. Because the, the book of Habakkuk begins with some really serious questions. Two questions, in fact. The first question, Habakkuk looks around at, at the world he's living in and says, how long? How long, O oh Lord, will you put up with this? And then when he engages God further and God tells him more, he says, like, why that? He doesn't like what he sees. We've been asking these questions. What happens when God doesn't do what you want him to do? What happens when God, put it this way, what happens when God does God-like things on, in God-like ways on God's kind of a schedule? And you really, frankly, don't think that it's good. What then? How do you handle that? So week one, we talked about questioning God well. Last week, we talked about waiting, our favorite subject, waiting. Today, we're going to keep moving forward talking about how we engage God and how do we watch for God 
Like what's, what's clear for us? What's blurry? What's in focus? What's out of focus? Because I found in the season when life doesn't make sense and in seasons of waiting, it's hard to know what's going on. So God in some ways pulls back the curtain for Habakkuk this week. I'll warn you, we're going to read it's like 10 or 11 verses. It's kind of hard to understand, but hopefully we'll walk through it and, and, and hear what God does. There's this interchange between God and Habakkuk, and hopefully it'll help our myopia too, our nearsightedness too. Here's the passage. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. It says, Behold, his soul is puffed up, It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges? Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him. I'll I'll pause there. I'll stop there. I, I, I know... I know it's a lot of information kind of coming at you, and it's kind of like, what is going on here? And there's woes, and there's... Again, Habakkuk starts in chapter 1 by looking around at life in his city, looking around at the world around him, and he's, he's distraught because he sees evil and wickedness and violence and destruction and he cries out to God, God, how long will you put up with this? There's, there's definitely, this world is not as it ought to be. And again, this could be pulled off today's front page news. How long? Violence, war. It seems like the wrong people are getting ahead, and those who are oppressed keep getting oppressed. How long? God, do you see? God, do you hear? God, do you, can you pay attention to what's happening? It's his first question. And then God says, actually, he replies, this is chapter 1, verse 5. And God replies to him and says, oh, I actually, I see, I hear, and I have a plan to do something about it. And he goes, here's my plan. He reveals his plan. He says, I'm going to raise up this nation, the Chaldeans, a wicked pagan nation, and they're going to come in and they're going to bring my judgment. And that sets off Habakkuk even more. He's like, you can't do it that way. They need judgment more than we do. They're even worse than we are. You can't use bad, evil, wicked people to bring judgment on us. Like that, doesn't, that makes no sense. 
So then Habakkuk takes his stand before God and says, reply, you're holy, and you're going to do it that way. That, That does not add up. So as he's waiting for God to reply, now God finally replies. Here's what God has in mind. Habakkuk is saying, they're evil, they're pagan, they need judgment. And God says, hold on, that's coming. And so in the middle of, their, uh, of Habakkuk's nearsightedness, God drops three images to help correct his focus. And those are the three I want to highlight briefly today. <laughs> he drops the glory of the Lord, the wrath of the Lord, Oh, no. And the rule of the Lord. Let me talk about those three. First, let's talk about the glory of the Lord. So as God begins to get more specific about the Babylonians, so he says, I'm going to raise them up, and they're going to bring judgment. And that makes Habakkuk, like, sick to his stomach. Because he says, they're wicked. They need judgment. And God says, hold on. I won't let their wickedness stand either. And, and he talks about it. We read some of this. He describes their error, the places that they've gone off. In terms of glory, uh, the Babylonians, verse 4, are puffed up, he says. Verse 5, they're arrogant and greedy. They're ambitious for power. Verses 5 and 6, they collect people for their own gain. Verse 8, they plunder in blood and violence. Verse 9, they get evil gain for their house, which sets up this false sense of security for them. Verse 12, they found their cities on iniquity. And so God is saying, yes, I'm going to use them in the short term, but, but Habakkuk, don't worry. Long term, I won't let their sin go unchecked either. And so he, he uses these woe statements. There's five of them in this chapter. I read three of them already. Verse 6 says, woe to him. Verse 9, woe to him. Verse 12, woe to him. Just so you know, it's a clue. When God speaks woe to you, that's not a good thing. It's kind of like when your parents use your middle name. Paul, Johnson, Jones. Uh Uh-oh. Woes are not good. But God calls them out and he speaks woes against the Babylonians. Even though he's going to use them for his purposes, ultimately he's not going to let their stuff stand. And he condemns them for living for their own good, for living for their own glory, for their own name, for their own fame, living without regard for anyone else. And to the casual observer like Habakkuk, they can't stand, he can't stand what he sees. But God says, I see them too. Look at verse 13. He says, Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that is actually meant to be a picture of promise for us. Here's God's heart on this. In the midst of all this chaos and violence and destruction and oppression and taking advantage of people, God says, 
This is not from me. This is not my heart. People laboring for fire. People laboring hard and and getting burned or wearying themselves for nothing. That's not the final plan. That's not God's final word. Here's what the final word is. Verse 14. The day is coming that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover this world like the water covers the sea. Oh, would we have a vision for that? I love the picture. (laughs) The water's covering the sea. He says, right now, Habakkuk, it looks like the earth is covered with the glory of Babylon. But that's not going to stand. In years past, I've talked about glory before, and I've told the glory story. The Hebrew word for glory is the word kavod. It means weight, weightiness. It can mean honor, value. But here, in a nutshell, is, is the glory story. I won't preach a whole other sermon here. But in Isaiah and in the Psalms, the Bible declares that the earth is filled with the glory of the Lord. His weight, God's value, his character is actually at this moment being screamed from all of creation that he is the one who has weight and value. However, though, in sin, we have chosen to make the glory exchange. Romans 1 says that we've exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and rather than worshiping the creator, we've turned to other things, and we've ignored God's glory. We've pushed it aside. So even though the glory is still there, we have said no thanks. So what does God do in the face of the glory exchange? God said, I'm going to choose a nation, I'm going to choose a people group, Israel, and they will be my glory people, and I will show up among them. And you read the story, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, eventually in Exodus and in the tabernacle and in the temple, God's glory would come among the people so heavy and so full, they couldn't even stand up. God meant them to be his glory people, to let the rest of the world know about his glory. And yet, though Israel, even though they were chosen, they continued to sin and reject God. Until finally, eventually, along the story, you come to Ezekiel, where there's this heartbreaking picture where the glory of God is seen leaving the temple. Ichabod, the glory of God departed from them. Until finally, God's glory came in Jesus. Jesus is born and the glory of the Lord shows back up on earth among the shepherds, which we saw today, among the angels today. God's glory has come in Jesus. So I I walk through that glory statement for you to understand that all of the human story has been a battle for glory. God's glory being shown, God's glory being rejected. God's glory intervening, God's glory being pushed away. God's glory showing up again. God is relentless in his pursuit to make his glory known again, which is why then God reveals to Habakkuk, he's wrestling with, all I can see is Babylon's glory. He's like, hey, hey, Habakkuk, you're nearsighted. I know it feels that way. I know you feel it in your gut, violence, destruction, oppression, but guess what? That will not be the end of the story. There will be a day when the knowledge of God's glory will cover the world again. As the water covers the sea. How does the water cover the sea? Thoroughly and completely. How wet is water? How, like how, 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 
And that's the point, that there will be a day when he comes back again and he puts the world to right and the knowledge of the glory of God will be experienced again. Babylonian glory, empire glory, even American glory will be just a small piece in light of the glory of the king. So God's saying to hey, Habakkuk, I know this is hard. I know you don't understand how this is all coming together, but guess what? One day, glory is coming. All right, that's the first picture. The second picture is wrath, which again, I'm like, man, this is a tough one to talk about. The wrath of God. Look at verse 15. It says, Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Again, he's speaking of the Babylonians. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. And when's the last time you heard a good sermon on the wrath of God? Like this is the one you're like, oh, I'm not sure what we're gonna talk about, the wrath. And it's like, again, you read these stories, like, God seems really angry. What happened? What's going on? As God continues to engage Habakkuk in this vision, that the next idea is this, this cup brimming with wrath. And here, he's comparing the Babylonian's cup of wrath to his cup of wrath. In verse 15, in the middle of this fourth woe statement, he talks about Babylon's cup of wrath. He says that's what they've been doing, is that Babylon's been going around and making all of the nations around them drink their wrath. That's been the violence and the destruction and the oppression, the taking advantage of people, the killing, the murder, the war. They've been forcing their cup of wrath on all sorts of people. And then God says, oh, but that's just a small shot glass compared to my wrath. The idea of the cup of wrath in the Old Testament, not uncommon. Isaiah talks about it in Isaiah 51. Jeremiah talks about it in Jeremiah 25. Here's the idea of of the cup of wrath, is that there is a day of reckoning. There's a day of judgment, which makes us a little uncomfortable. But if you've ever spent time looking at the world, If you've ever been on that end of it, if you've ever seen war, violence, destruction firsthand, this is actually good news. That it will not be let go forever. I know we love to talk about the love of God. And we believe in the love of God. First John says that God is love. Like, how can there be a loving God who's also angry and has wrath? But God is so perfect and pure in his love that he can't allow wickedness to stand, ultimately. And in his righteous, perfect love, he will say, enough's enough. This has to stop. This has to end. And God says, there's a day coming when I will deal with that. 
Babylon has been able to bully their way around to, again, dish out their cup of wrath around their neighbors, humiliating people, taking advantage of people. Verse 15 says they do it to gaze at their nakedness and shame their neighbors with no thought of accountability. It's we can do whatever we want to and get away with it. But God is clear here that their activity will be turned against them. Instead of them having glory, they will get shame. Instead of serving out wrath, God says, I will judge you. And instead of them gazing at the poor nakedness of those that they conquer, instead, they themselves will be undone. And again, the wording, sorry to be graphic here, but the wording is graphic. Verse 16, he says, drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The literal phrasing is, show off your foreskin. The day is coming when those Babylonians will face the judge of the world. Many people live as though there is no God. As though I can do whatever I want to with no consequence. People do this. Nations do this. And in our spiritual myopia living right here we don't have the vision to see what's to come habakkuk has been whining for a few chapters now god what are you doing god do you hear me this is horrible this is painful there is injustice in this world and god says i know habakkuk i am the judge of the earth and i will do what's right I don't know about you, but this makes me a little less whiny. God, make my eyes see, not just right here and right now, but may I have an eternal lens, a vision to see who you are. Habakkuk in chapter 1 says, will Babylon keep on destroying forever? That's what he says in Habakkuk 1.17. Is Babylon going to destroy everyone forever? Is war just going to go on forever? Will raping and pillaging happen forever? Will the rich just rip off the poor forever? God says, no. No. God drops a picture of his glory. He drops a picture of his wrath and judgment. And then also he drops in a picture of his rule. This is verse 18. He says, what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise, can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. Uh, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So this is the last woe. Again, there's five woes in the chapter. And God condemns Babylon for their idolatry. And he gets a little sarcastic, right? Verse 18, verse 19. He's like, this is actually kind of ridiculous for you to take wood and stone and metal and you make something out of it and then you worship it. In verse 18, he says, what good is an idol when you're the one who made it? If you're the maker and then you put the trust in it, 
What good is it when you worship what comes from your own hands? You made it, you formed it, you build it, and then you say, teach me. Why, why tell wood and stone to get up? And God's trying to point out the insanity of idolatry. It's like woods don't wake up and stones don't move and things formed from gold and silver don't have a brain to teach you anything. And you may say, well, Paul, that's an ancient problem. Like, aren't, aren't you so glad that we're not primitive like that? Aren't you so glad that we don't gather around things made of wood and stone? Aren't you glad that we don't gather around things of metal <laughs> and worship them? Can you imagine how ridiculous that would be <laughs> to have a piece of metal that you drive around define you or to have the size of your house define your success or to give your attention to a screen of glass for hours a day? <laughs> We're not primitive like that. An idol is simply that which has your utmost devotion and attention. And so in the middle of this scene, God drops one last picture in verse 20, and he says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his throne. Let all the earth keep silence before him. He says, there is one who is unmade. There's only one who's unmade, not being made. There's only one who does not need any help. There's only one who doesn't need to be propped up or coaxed or taught. And he says, right here, right now, the Lord is in his holy temple, God of heaven and earth, on his throne. He rules and he reigns and he is sovereign over all. Nothing escapes his eye. Nothing escapes his ears. And everything exists because of him. And this word here, let there be silence. It's the Hebrew word has. It's like, hush. Be quiet. There's so much noise and activity. Even there's, there's war and destruction and violence and injustice. And there's idols competing for the hearts and minds of men and women all over the world. And God says, shh, be quiet. Because there's one who's on the throne. There's one who rules and reigns over all. There's one who has come to offer himself in Jesus to rescue and redeem all the sinful, broken ways that we express ourselves and try and find purpose in our lives. In this moment, in the, in the pressure cooker of life, Habakkuk can't see it. He's stuck in nearsightedness. And, and I do too, right? I get stuck in my job and I get stuck with well, my family and my kids and I'm stuck with Olympia and I get stuck with the United States. I get stuck with all this stuff that I can't see and God's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I know you can't see this, but I want you to look up, see. Shh, be quiet. The nations rage. People fight. Violence continues. People scramble to find things to satisfy the inner longings of their heart, but there's only one who will satisfy. It's not just Habakkuk. <laughs> it's us too. I find that we are blind to the glory of God. 
Some of you are here this morning and you thought you were just coming to a cute nativity play and now there's this guy from reading from Habakkuk. I believe that God is inviting you to catch a glimpse of his glory and we're blind to the wrath of God that God will not put up forever with sin and evil and rebellion and injustice will be dealt with in full. Evil won't be overlooked forever. But my friends, if you catch anything at Christmas, this is what Christmas is about. That God has come to rescue us from our sin. Because we're Babylon. And he's come to save us that we would turn and believe and trust in him, that he would forgive us our sin, that Jesus came, yes, as a baby, but he then lived and he ultimately died and he was nailed to a tree and he experienced the wrath of God that we rightly deserved, that we, the sinner, would go free and experience grace and be forgiven. We're blind to the holy rule of God. He's on the throne. He's not through. I offer you a corrective lens for your vision at the heart of this Advent season. And that corrective lens is Jesus. All that Habakkuk was speaking of back then points to Jesus. Because in the Messiah, Jesus, the glory of God endured the wrath of God and now rules and reigns as king over all things. Jesus is the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And he invites you to know him. You are made for him. That, that bigger than your sports team bigger than your portfolio, bigger than your career path, bigger than your marital status, would be a picture and a vision of a God so good, so holy, so loving, so pursuing that he's offering himself again to you. May our eyes be on him, his glory, his rule, his judgment. And we sense his invitation to turn and believe and follow him today. All that he is and all that he has done changes how we live today. Can you see him? Can you see him? Let's pray. <laughs> Jesus, I thank you for the hospitality of those here today to listen. And I pray, Lord, through all of this, the, the play and the music and the candles and the cuteness, uh, may we hear and see beyond our own faces and our own hands today. And may we again remember the ending of the story to come that you've shown us. I pray for those even today that have not yet come to know you. Would they be willing to say a yes of faith even today?
And Lord, as we wait, because we are waiting, you have not come back yet, as we wait and we grow impatient in our waiting, as we grow brokenhearted in all that we see, may you remind us and we watch for you. Lord, help us in our waiting. Lord, Lord, may you continue to form us as a church to be more like you, to love like you, to see like you, to understand as you do. Get our eyes off of all the other things, the idols of our heart. And may we again come and turn to you today. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.